Okay, open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3, okay? Jonah chapter 3. And as you're turning, oh boy, we've spent about six weeks on Jonah chapters 1 and 2. Uh, you guys learning stuff? Yeah? Okay. Good. Jonah chapters 1 and 2. God calls a prophet from Israel by the name of Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh, the baddest, meanest, largest, most violent, most wicked, most pagan nation, unchristian nation on the face of the earth. And he says, preach the gospel. Jonah says, I don't think so. And he runs. We've talked about what it means to run from God, what essence of sin is. But God intercepts Jonah. And extends grace to him. In chapter 2, we see Jonah in the belly of the fish praying this incredible prayer where he begins to understand what grace is. So finally, when we come down to chapter 2, Jonah is spit out of the fish. And in Jonah chapter 3, there's what we find. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Anybody else find that beautiful no. <laughs> he said, they're going, why? What about it? It comes a second time. You know, people talk about what it means to be born again. Here's a beautiful illustration of what it means to be born again. Anybody can start over. Anybody. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, can begin anew. Essence of the gospel. Jonah, for him. God says, here we go again. Verse 2, so go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, I love this contrast. The Hebrew writer, oh, Jonah chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee. Jonah chapter 3, he rose to obey. Verse uh, verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very important, the liberal Hebrew word there is gadol. Everybody say it with me. Gadol, which means great, which means uh, uh, important. It's large. It's massive. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed. By the way, we talked about this last week. What do you think he looked like? Can you imagine what you look like? Inside the belly of this large fish for three days, you're vomited out. You're on shore. And Jonah just walks into the city. Can you imagine the scene? Imagine what he looks like, what he smells like. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, this, is, this cracks me up, okay? Because as we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah fully still doesn't understand grace, okay? That's the entirety of his sermon. Now, there's some scholars who say, no, he summarized it. He summed, you know, it's just kind of, you know, the when he wrote it, it was just kind of summation. Still, still, any word of grace? Any word of God's love, any word of he is for you, any word of he cares for you, any word of if you, what, what's his message? 40 more days and y'all gone. That's his message. 40 more days and y'all gone. 40 more days. The Ninevites believed God. I love sort of the short, succinct narration of this. You know, 40 more days is the worst sermon ever preached, okay? And then verse 5, and they believe God. Like, what? <laughs> they didn't believe in Jonah's message of God. They, what? Believe in God. 
They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the, ro- when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. You know, they're covering all their bases, right? Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. It's unbelievable. Oh, we spent a couple of Sundays on this. Okay. Um, as we've been talking about, Assyria is modern-day Iraq. So imagine Jonah in Baghdad, if you will. It is the most powerful, the most violent, we'll talk about this next week, the most violent, strongest, intimidating city, country, nation in the world. Their fortresses are so insurmountable that armies couldn't even get around the circumference of the city. So the thought of besieging the city was, an, it was, was not even on people's radar. It was, it was an intimidating, wicked city. And yet God changed the city through one man. God besieges this insurmountable city by besieging one man. He changes one man. And he changes an entire city. I say that once more. He changes one man, and he changes an entire city. The title of the sermon next week, too, is City Changers Wanted. And I want to talk to you, essentially, for the next two weeks about what it means for us to be city changers. He doesn't need a lot of people, by the way, to change Chicago. He changed Nineveh through one person. doesn't need a lot of us. Let me start here, though. As I've been thinking about this passage... We're thinking a lot about this innate thing that all of us share, and that is that every single one of us in this room, I don't need to know you, Christian or not, different faith, every single one of us long for our lives to count in some ways. True? Isn't it amazing how much people can endure when they know that there is a purpose to what is it they're going through? It was Friedrich Nietzsche, a famed atheist philosopher, who said, when we know the why to our lives, we can bear with almost any how. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream and he was killed for it. But when you and I have no dreams, it kills us. Every single one of us in this room, we want our lives to count for something. We want our lives to be significant, to, to, to matter, to have a higher purpose. By the way, is this not true of somebody in here? Innate human, right? Matter of fact, it is when we have a purpose of significance, there's this strength that, is, uh, that arises within us to say, my life matters. It's when we dream of a better world, isn't it interesting, that we become better people. It changes us to know that there's a purpose, a significance to what we do. Let me tell you how powerful this is. I heard a story about a young lady. Grew up in a terrible, terrible background. Just a horrendous uh, uh, abuse and so on and so forth. And in her early 20s, she decided, I'm just going to end my life. It's not worth it anymore. So she drove out to this cliff in Southern California where many people have committed suicide. Drives out to this edge of the cliff, fully thinking, I'm done. Now, you would think, in order for someone who is that committed to ending their lives, something huge would be required for them to change their mind. 
But it's at that time that as she was about to walk off the cliff, the phone rang in her purse. She didn't realize her cell phone was on. She picked it up. There was nobody on the other line. It just clicked and did. This is what she goes on to say. She said, that day, I decided not to take my life. Why? Somebody needed me. Somebody called me. Somebody just wondered where I was. That's all it took for a person to say, not today. Every single one of us in this room has this innate thing in us that says, my life needs to matter for something. My life has a higher purpose, a significance to my life. Matter of fact, there's some of you who are sitting here today, and you've made much of this life, because this is all there is to this world. But the more we make of this life, the more we lose when we have to leave it. True? I'm always saying in here, your life, blink and it's gone. I was at a memorial service yesterday for Pastor Michael Dawn, his wife's father. And sitting there, I was reminded once again that you and I, when we're young, think we're going to live forever. Only to recognize life, blink, and it's gone. We all have an expiration date. The question is, how are you living this life that's here for a moment and gone? You've heard me say many times before, many of us are afraid of failure. Failure shouldn't be your greatest fear. Our fear shouldn't be that we would fail. Our fear should be that we would succeed at something that really doesn't matter. That we would give out our entire lives for something that at the end of the day would look back and go, I gave my life for that. Is there something of significance, a purpose of meaning that you are giving your life for? Dorothy Sayers Dorothy Sayers said this, and this is just a, such a powerful, powerful quote for me. She said that the sin that plagues our world today is sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. The sin of the great age is that there's nothing bigger than my own needs or interests for which I will not only live but die for My question to you sitting here today is, is there something to live for? Is there something that you believe in? A truth, a power, a cause. Is there something that you believe in that you are not only willing to live for it, but willing to die for it? Is there something larger than you? See, here's the ironic thing, right? The bigger we become in our eyes, in other words, we live for my pleasure, my joys, my goals, my ambitions. The bigger we become in our eyes, Interesting enough, the smaller we become. The more important I become in my own eyes, live for my goals, my desires, my wishes, my things. The more important I become, the less important I become in my eyes. The more I live for myself, the more I feel insignificant. It's ironic, isn't it? Why? Because you're not touching anybody. You're not living for anybody but you. Not transforming anyone. Changing anyone. The more I become in my eyes, the less I become in my eyes. The more significant I become in my eyes, the less significant in my eyes. Is there something that you are living for? A cause, a purpose, significance that's bigger than you. 
your goals, your ambitions, your life. And we all care. We all care, you know. We volunteer. We throw some money, volunteer our time. But I'm not talking about, I'm talking about is there something for which you're saying, I'm going to, I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to give my entire life for that, that cause, that purpose. Is there something that is that important, that huge, that you're wrapping your life around? Is there? Is there? Is there? Is there something for which you are willing to give your heart and soul? Or is your heart and soul shriveling up because you are living for nobody but you? You know why this is so huge for me? If there's people on the face of the earth who should live their life for something larger than themselves, it's us followers of Jesus. Do you know why? Because we believe in the kingdom of God. Hello? We believe in the future coming kingdom. With sanity and clarity, we could give our life for a cause knowing that God is at work to restore and renew this world. With clarity and with intentionality and with sanity, we can live out our lives, not for some pipe dream that's never going to happen, but for a purpose that God says is a certainty. When he came the first time, he began this process of renewing and restoring the whole world. When he comes back, he's going to finish the job. In between, he says, you, 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 give your life for a cause. It saddens me when I look at our world that people who are driven by power, evil, greed, they don't ask for permission. Evil never asks for permission. Matter of fact, they are forging a future, a world of their liking, while those of us who care about God's beauty, justice, and love sit passively waiting. Is that you? I'm going to talk about this next week. We think God is apathetic and indifferent because we are apathetic and indifferent. Am I talking to anybody this morning? (laughs) I'm going amen all by myself this morning. This is so important. Next two, next two times when we meet, this message, this, this part in chapter three is so important for me. Because God is looking for city changers, world changers. And it begins, guys, with this perspective that says, I want my life to count for something. Significance, worth, a purpose that's higher than me. That I can live for and ultimately even die for. Where are these men and women in our churches today? Where are they? I hope they're sitting here today. (laughs) All right, guys, how do we do that? After that big intro, Peter, you better tell us how to do that. Okay, how do we do that? Okay, well, I talk about Jesus. Of course, it always goes back to Jesus. You know what I mean? First of all, uh, let's get some principles. First, hear the word of grace. Hear the word of grace. How do we become these city changers? You you know me. I'm not going to go, so get out there and do it. I'm going to start with, do you understand sin? Do you understand grace? Which leads to mission. First of all, hear the word of grace. What do I mean? We're just literally going to spend today on verse 1 and 2. That's it. Okay? That's it. We're just going to give this broad picture. Don't worry. We'll finish chapter 3, though, next week. Okay? Broad picture. Where do we find this? Hear the word of grace. God comes to Jonah a second time. A second time. A second time. 
God recommissions Jonah in light of all that he's done. Here's the word of grace. You ready? God doesn't hold grudges. (laughs) God doesn't hold grudges. We can learn sometimes, you guys, a lot from what the Bible doesn't say. You notice, read the Bible carefully. Do you notice anywhere where Jonah says, God, I'm sorry for running? No. You, you see anywhere in the Bible where Joseph, Jonah says, you know what? I really, really screwed up, God. No, we, we, there isn't. And yet, what does God do? God calls him and says, second time, I'm recommissioning you. There's no sense at all about God saying to Jonah, Jonah, by the way, do you remember how you screwed up royally? You got on that ship. There's a reminder of his feelings. His words, God's words carry no rebuke. Or is there any sense in the Hebrew scriptures where God's going, you know, I'm going to regret things. I'm going to regret doing this. This guy's washed up. This guy's pathetic. This guy ran. I'm got, there's no sense in which God goes, God. It's almost as God takes Jonah's sins and hurls them into the sea. As the psalmist says, God also has hurled our sins into the sea as far as the east is from the west. This is foreign to us. Like you need to remember. God doesn't hold grudges foreign to us because you and I are very familiar with, hello, people, what? Holding grudges. We're accustomed to this. We're used to this. We are unfamiliar with unconditional love. So we're unfamiliar with, or we're only familiar with conditional love. Holding grudges. Someone not holding grudges is a concept that's unfamiliar to many of us. Many of us are used to people saying to us, you let me down. You hurt me. You didn't do what I asked you to do. You betrayed me. You owe me. Therefore, our relationship is done. We're very familiar with people holding grudges against us. We're very familiar with people, biblical word, counting our sins against us. This is the terminology that Paul uses when he talks about, listen, this incredible gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. There's that word, not counting men's sins against them. The gospel says God never counts your sins against you. Hallelujah. Now, who then does he count our sins against? Jesus. He goes on, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what the theologians and the early church fathers began to call the great exchange or the glorious exchange. That is, God exchanges our corruption and our sin for Christ's righteousness and his perfection. The great exchange God doesn't count our sins against us. He counts them against Christ on the cross. And in place of our corruption and sin, we get his righteousness and perfection. That means he offers acceptance not on what we do or what we don't do, but on what Christ has already done. And it's an acceptance of God that can neither be gained by our achievement or performance, nor can it be forfeited by our failure. You don't get in because you're good. And you can't get out because you're bad. The gospel. You're not accepted because you're good. Gospel, you can't be rejected because you're bad. Is that good news? Why? Because God doesn't count our sins against us.
this, if you truly understand it, if you truly understand what the gospel says, when it says God doesn't hold grudges, that his perfect demands for our lives has been met by Jesus. He lived the life, Jesus, where we, could, we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. The glorious exchange. And in faith in Christ, God accepts us unconditionally. We believe in a faith. Christianity says that God makes perfect demands and he meets them at the same time. In the form of his son. Is that good news to anybody? (laughs) You know what this means? Let me just practically break it down for you. This means for many of us. You're sitting there going, God, I don't believe that God holds grudges, really. Look, when you mess up, when you mess up and you run, God doesn't need a cooling off period. How many of us in our approach to God, it's like, I messed up. He got me angry. I'm going to let you cool off. I'm going to let you cool off. It's like we're saying to God, God, I'm going to give you time out, okay? I'm going to give you some time out. I'll give you a little bit of space, okay? Because I'm going to, what do we do? I'm going to get my act together, right? I'm going to clean my life up. And then when you've cooled off and time out has affected, I'm going to, isn't that how we work? That's why when we sin and when we mess up, what do we do? Instead of grace says, run towards God so we can find deeper his grace. What do we do? We run away from God saying, I know you hold grudges. You need to cool off a little bit. So I'm going to. The Bible says God doesn't need a cooling off period. He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't sit there and go, Jonah. I really ought to not send you again. Look at all these things you've done. Do you feel bad for what you've done? Do you really, really feel bad? I don't think you feel bad yet. Feel bad a little bit more, and then we'll talk. Immediately, God comes to Jonah and says, in grace, recommissioning you. Is that good news this morning? There are some of you that walk into church, and I don't even know. I could see it. It's the whole, this is why some of you just avoid church or Christians altogether when you mess up. Because you think that God needs to cool out. He's angry. And there's this barrier that happens, right? It happens relationally. When we, when we know we did something wrong, a barrier comes. And we think that barrier exists, and it's sort of insurmountable. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ on the cross destroyed any barrier that exists between you and God. God says, there is no barrier to anyone who says, I'm going to turn from sin and run towards you, God, even though I don't deserve it. God says, arms wide open, welcome back. Some of y'all sitting here going, God, I haven't self-loathed enough for what I've done. God's going to you. I don't hold grudges. I don't hold grudges. Hear the word of grace. You want to be a city changer? This better be the engine that's at work in your heart. Oh, man. Secondly, embrace the Jonah principle. Embrace the Jonah principle. What do I mean? You know, if you look at this text, it really, again, it really doesn't make any sense. If you were God, no, I I don't mean that like in in a sense that you already think you are. I'm saying if you were like God with capital G, would you use Jonah? How many say yes? If we were God, would you use Jonah? I wouldn't use Jonah. If I was God, I'd say, that, that's, that's the guy. No, I don't, I don't think so. He, 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 he's washed up. He's made mistakes. He's run. I gave him a chance. He didn't take advantage of it. He's done. 
That's what I would do. But you know, God has a funny habit of continuing to do what he does to Jonah, doesn't he? He has a funny habit of continuing to go to those people who have the worst track record amongst other people. Do you remember Jesus? Of all the disciples, check this out. Who does Jesus choose to lead his movement ultimately amongst his disciples? Do you remember? What's his name? Peter. Yeah. I, I really resonate very much with Peter. Not just because of the name, but because I could very much resonate with the whole foot-in-the-mouth disease that he struggled with. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I very much resonate with that. Jesus chooses Peter to carry on his movement. Here's the Jonah principle. Ready? Failure and suffering makes you useful for God. Failure and suffering make you useful for God. I'm going to take you to a text, okay? I take you to text. I talk about this at some Easter, you know, some of the Easter sermons. But let, let me show you from Scripture. Mark chapter 16. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, okay? If you don't have your Bible, you can look up here. We're going to look at verse 6, but essentially the context in Mark chapter 6, 16, uh, when we come to verse 6, Jesus has been crucified. All the disciples have betrayed him. They fled. They're just a handful of women that are still sticking around, okay? In verse 6, they go to the tomb, and it says, an angel appears and says, Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Do you see what a word of grace that is? Anybody? I could preach this message every Sunday for this reason. Consider what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to the woman, you go tell those faithless, no good, backstabbing cowards that I might use them, just might use them if they grovel. And they really grovel. Is that what Jesus says? No, he doesn't. What does he say? What does he say? He literally says to them, go. Go and tell them. Go and tell them that I'm going to use them. He says, I will use you. Go ahead of me. Tell them that I will see them. He doesn't say, unless you grovel, unless you repent, unless you say that you're sorry and really, really sorry, I will use you. He says to them, I will use you. I'm going ahead of you. I will use you as a part of this movement to change the world before they've even had a chance to repent. Before they've even had a chance to see Jesus and say, Jesus, really sorry for running. I'm sorry for, before they've even had a chance to do that. It's what Paul says in Romans when he says, it's his kindness that leads to repentance. Jesus saying to them, my plans for you to change this world. It's still true. And I especially resonate with Peter because you notice what Jesus says. He's always intentional. He doesn't just say, hey, go and tell the disciples. He says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Do you know why? Imagine what would happen if Jesus simply said, go tell the disciples. I'm still going to use them. Women would have gone back and said, Jesus said he still wants to use you. Disciples get up and go, we're going to go, man. Let's go. Peter said, no, you guys go. Why? Aren't you coming? No, no, no. Well, why not? Well, you guys know what I did. Remember how I stood up in front of everybody and said, even if everybody here leaves you, I will never abandon you. Rooster crows three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know. What he did was worse than what anybody else had done. So he said, yeah, the, Jesus wants to use you. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I'm going to stay right here. And yet, what does this guy, Jesus say? Go tell the disciples and Peter. This is good news for anybody here, and I can preach this every Sunday. 
who's sitting here going, I've done some things and I've so messed up my life, there's no way that God could redeem me. By the way, I know that for like majority of you good moral people, you're sitting there going, is that really good news to somebody in here? You have no idea what this means for that person in here that's going, I walked in today, I'm going, I am irredeemable. I'm not able to be healed. There's no way that God, light of what I've done, there's no, the amount of betrayal, the things that I've, the kinds of things that I've made mistakes on. And I want to tell you today, I want to tell you today, I want to tell you, the gospel comes to you and says that his grace is big enough for you. Our capacity to sin is great, but his capacity to forgive is even greater. Grace is our willingness to sin is great. His willingness to forgive is even greater. So if there's anybody sitting here today that's saying, I am irredeemable, man. I am. There's no way even God. I'm telling you right now, the forgiveness and the grace of God available for you. It's powerful enough for you too. It's powerful enough for you too. See the word of grace. Now, the Jonah principle, though. This is what I love. This is what I love. We know from church history that Peter winds up becoming the biggest leader. The Catholic church traces their roots, for crying out loud, on the apostle Peter. Right? He is sort of the, the rock from which the Catholic church is built. How can that be when the biggest screw-up was Peter? Here's the Jonah principle, profound. Failure makes us useful for God's kingdom. Let me explain it this way. He who screws up the biggest, that person's repentance will be the deepest. As a result, their grasp of the gospel will be the greatest. As a result, they will be most useful for the movement of Jesus. Can I say that one more time? Say that one more time. He who screws up the biggest. So those are going, I knew there was some good in me. <laughs> okay? I, I'm big time screw up. Oh, this is good news for you. Okay? He who screws up the biggest. As a result, your repentance will be the deepest. As a result, your grasp of the gospel will be the greatest. And as a result, you'll be the most useful for the kingdom of God. Check this out. Check this out. This is so different from the way religion works. Because in religion, here's what it says. Salvation comes to those who are strong. Salvation comes to those who are morally good. To those who are morally good in religion, the only hope of salvation, only hope of acceptance by God is if you're a good person, you don't make any mistakes. So, failure and repentance is traumatic. Why? Because when you admit that you failed, when you admit that you've sinned, it disrupts the flow of God's grace and power in your life. Grace and power of God comes to those in religion who are morally good, who behave well, who live a good life. And so if you admit, I failed, I'm not that good, it disrupts the flow of God's grace in your life. So religious people that don't understand the gospel, they hate admitting that they're wrong. They hate admitting that they failed. Why? Admission that I'm wrong. I failed. It disrupts the flow of God's grace and mercy because you have to be strong. You have to do it. You have to be moral. But the gospel comes and says, salvation becomes those who are accepted in Christ. So, salvation comes to those who are accepted, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. So here's the thing. Someone who embraces the gospel, they have no problems admitting their flaws, admitting that they're weak, admitting that they help. Why? Because admitting that you're weak and you're helpless has nothing to do with whether God accepts you or not. You're already accepted in Christ because of what he has done. So you're free to admit your flaws. You're free to admit your mistakes. You're free to admit that you failed. And so it doesn't disrupt the flow of God's grace. 
It opens up in your life a channel to receive God's mercy and God's grace. And so here's what happens. A person who's deeply impacted by the gospel says, I've made mistakes. I've failed. I'm not a good moral person. I need grace and grace alone. Gospel comes. Grace comes. Power and grace of God comes into your life. But the more God's grace, the more God's power of the gospel comes into your life, the more you see I'm not deserving of it. I'm not worthy of it. And the more you see I'm not deserving it. I'm not worthy of it. The more you see he loves me anyway. He loves me anyway. Does it make sense? And so that dynamic engine in your life makes you both confident. You can do anything. You're not afraid. But it makes you humble and not self-righteous and judgmental. So those people in here who are like, I'm a big screw up. I'm not that good. You are a perfect candidate to be used for the kingdom. Is that good news? Oh, see? And then there's some of us who are like, yeah, you know why? Because you're sitting there going, I don't really need God's grace. I'm good. I'm all right. You know, I'm not that bad. I mean, compared to, but I'm. Religion disrupts the flow of God's grace and power. Because God's grace and power comes to those who say, I need, I need grace. I can't do this on my own. Exactly. God's grace and power comes to your life. And when he does, you realize, even though I'm more wicked and sinful than I dare believe, I am more accepted and I'm more loved than I dared hope at the same time. He who screw up is biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. Jonah Principle. As a result, the grasp of the gospel will be the greatest and you'll be the most useful for the kingdom. The best leaders, the best counselors, the best parents, best everything else are those who are the best repenters. And the best repenters come from those who have often made a mess of their lives. I just want to ask this morning, um, um, how many of you really resonate with, with this? Yeah? Okay. Yeah? Your hands are going up? Okay. You know what? Every Sunday I have the privilege of standing up here and I have people come for the last six weeks and say, thank you for preaching grace. And it's amazing and uncanny because almost every single one of them, okay, every single one of them, have a story in which they say, I thought I was all that, but at some point I saw the depths of my sin. Depths of my inability. And I ask you this morning, church, good people, moral people, church-going folk, What does it mean if the thing that God uses you is coming to a deeper and greater understanding and appreciation of the gospel? It's what we've been talking about all along. How do you see grace? You got to see the depths of your sin, but you got to also see the depths of his love at the same time. Jonah principle. Failure makes you useful for God. Here's the second part of that principle. Suffering also makes you useful for God. Jesus actually talks about this. Let me say it again. Suffering makes you useful for God. The Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew 12, and he says, basically, they say, if you're the Messiah, do some miracle that will prove that you're really God. And Jesus could if he wanted to, but this is what he says in Matthew 12, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. And this is where we get our text, actually. That's a New Testament parallel to the book of Jonah. The only sign you will receive when he talks about sign of Jonah, is the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he saying? He could do the miracle, but what Jesus' answer is this. You will know who I am. You want to know I'm really the Messiah? You want to know I'm the son of God? He says, you will know who I am. Not by my strength, but by my what? My weakness. 
Salvation will come via weakness and death, not by strength. Salvation will come by weakness and death. He says in John chapter 12, verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, everybody say dies. Everybody say dies, dies. It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. This isn't just true for Jonah and Jesus, is it? It's also true for us. Suffering and failure make you useful for God. God works it like that. If there's anybody here this morning that's saying, Peter, I'm challenged. I want to be a world changer. You go to God and say, God, I want to be a world changer. I want to be a city changer. You see me, you know what God's going to do? He's going to put you in boot camp. You know what boot camp is? Suffering, trials, hardships, difficulties. Why? Why does God do that? I heard, a, I heard a pastor say this, and it really resonated with me and why God often does this. Most of us in here, there's a belief system in our heads that needs to be shaken out of us. And that belief system in our heads that needs to be shaken out of us is this. We believe that the world is a very safe place. The world is a very safe place. And we are protected from, from, from harm and from danger. And when suffering comes and hardship comes, it's because they did something wrong. And God has to come and shake that out of us. You know how God does that? It happens to you. You fail. You suffer. You go through a hard time. And you stare and go, oh, I guess it doesn't just happen to bad people or evil people or people who don't obey God. It happens to God has to shake this belief out of us that says the world's a safe place and suffering and hardships come to those who disobey. What does this do to us? It does two things. Suffering makes you servant because it makes you humble. Isn't that true? Suffering comes into our lives and there's something about our self-righteous, judgmental naivete that, 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 that goes away because we suffer in our lives and it makes us humble. And when, when it breaks us, what it does is it makes us approachable. And you can't be used by God to change the city or the world if you're not approachable. And the thing that makes you approachable is deep sense of humility that comes to you. Talk to anybody who has suffered tremendously and you'll always sense a deep, deep, deep sense of humility. Second thing, not only does it make you approachable humble, but it makes you compassionate. It makes you compassionate. I've had massive stomach problems. Okay, I've had upper GI scope, all this stuff done, okay? Anybody done that? You go to hospital, it doesn't feel good. It's not a good experience, right? So a friend of mine told me about this experience. He had the same thing. He went to the hospital, okay? And he's gone several times. And this last time that he went, he was on the table, and the technician was very gentle with him, very gentle with him. Turn over to the side. You feeling okay? Feeling okay? Okay. Now turn over to the other side. I'm going to take this slow. And afterwards, the guy asked the technician and said, you're incredibly gentle with me. Unlike some of the others. What happened? And the technician said, I had to get it done last week. <laughs> There's something about having gone through it yourself that makes you not just humble and compassionate. Think about it. In our society, who are the people that are helping the handicapped? The parents of the handicapped or the handicapped themselves? Who are the people that are leading the fight against drunk drivers? Those who've lost loved ones to drunk driving. 
In our church, who are the women that are being powerfully used by God to help other women who've gone through miscarriages? Women who've gone through miscarriages. Who are the people even in our society that are making a huge impact in the lives of men and women who go through tremendous suffering? Men and women who've gone through it themselves. Suffering makes you useful for God because it humbles you and makes you deeply compassionate to the needs of those that you may have never, ever thought about before. But here's the thing, and you need to listen to this. If you're somebody that's going through failure and suffering right now, the amazing thing is we want it to be automatic. I'm going to be passive, suffering and failure. It'll automatically make me useful for God, a servant for God. It doesn't. It doesn't. Here's the thing. Suffering and failure either will drive you deeper into yourself of self-pity and self-absorption, or it'll drive you out of yourself in humility and compassion. Did you hear what I just said? If you're going through failure, suffering, if you're going through something hard, you're sitting here and there's something that jumps in you because you're like, Peter, you're, I'm going through something right now. Hard, suffering, and this whole aspect, humility, compassion. I don't know. If that's how you respond to this, let me tell you something. It doesn't automatically turn us into a compassionate, humble person useful for God. It's how you respond to it. For some of you, the way that you will respond and make it useful for God is that the suffering and failure will drive you deeper into grace and deeper out of yourself to look at other people around you going, who is in need? Who can I help? And then there are others of you. Suffering and failure will drive you deeper into yourself in self-pity and self-absorption. The choice, believe it or not, is up to you. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it, child of God? How many of you sitting here saying, I want these things? God says, don't waste your sorrows. It could either drive you deeper into yourself and self-pity and self-absorption. Or it could drive you out of yourself and make you someone useful for God. Oh, I prayed for many of you this week as I was preparing this message because I hear this all the time and I just simply pray, God, I pray for her who grew up in an abusive childhood experience. And she has dealt with the struggle, this inner tension of inadequacy, insecurity, guilt, and even anger. And as I was preparing this message, as you struggled trying to make sense of it, I simply prayed for you. I want you to know today that I said, God, I pray that what she has gone through will not drive her deeper into herself and self-pity and self-absorption, but drive her out of herself to be someone that will change this world. Hmm. Lastly, this is just a, uh, an overview for, for what we're going to do next, uh, next time in chapter 3. But obey the word of mission. Obey the word of mission. What do I mean? This is one word go. One word go. God by nature is ascending and calling God. You know what I love? When God, God comes back to Jonah. <laughs> I love this. You may not. God doesn't go, Jonah, that was hard three days. Take a vacation. What does God do? <laughs> yeah. He says, hey, hey, clean yourself up just a little bit because you don't want to stink. You know what I'm saying? Go. 
You know what this means? Mission isn't just for the well-rested. Mission isn't just for those who have money. Mission isn't just for those who have gift of gab. Mission isn't just for those who have lots of time, energy, and resources on their heads. Mission isn't just for the spiritual elite. Mission isn't for the spirit. Mission is for anybody who says, I follow the God of the universe. Anyone who says, I follow God of the universe, God comes and says, mission is for you. Matter of fact, God comes and says, you want to know me? You want to really know me? You want to know what I'm like? Here's the kind of God I am. I am a sending God. I am a calling God. As soon as you say you believe in me, I'm saying, go out. As soon as you say I'm available, go out. Boot camp, get out. Boot camp, get out. I'm ascending God. I'm a calling God. God says to us today, I'm sending you. Go now. Who can you serve? Who can you serve? Who can you love? Where can you put your life for that cause? What are the things that you can give your life to? Go. I'm sending you. God is a spiritual tornado. He sucks you in and then he spits you out. You cannot follow this God of the universe and say, I'm safe and comfortable right here. God says, I call you in to send you out. I fill you so that I can fill the earth with my glory. I heal you so that you might be a healer. I bless you so that you might be a blessing. Do you get that? Do you get that? Do you get that? That it is at the core of your identity as a Christian. God never ever calls anybody in without sending you out. Never. Never. Do you have a mission or cause? Do you have a mission or cause? This paradigm is found throughout the scriptures. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. You have heard me talk about this, many of you. Abraham comes to God and God says, I'm going to bless you. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. And go to a land that I will show you and I will bless you. And you will be a blessing to many nations. Get out of what, Abraham says. God says, get out of your family, your culture, your nation. In other words, principle, get out of your security zone. Jonah, God says, you ready? Go. Go where, God? Nineveh, meanest, baddest, most wicked, most violent city on the face of the earth. Jonah principle, get out of your safety zone. Get out of your comfort zone. God comes to any Christian and this is his call. This is his mission. He says, you want to follow me? You want to know me? I am sending you out. I am spitting you back out. Out of what, God? Out of the secure, out of the safe, out of the comfortable. And we're on very familiar emotional terrain right now. Because you're sitting there going, I don't want to get involved in that ministry. Because if I do, they're going to get a piece of me. A piece of my time. A piece of my energy. A piece of my life. God's asking me to get involved in that person right there. He's a basket case. He's going to drain the life out of me. And it's going to take <gasps> commitment. Oh, no. It's going to take my resources. They might call me if I want to go out of town and I might not be able to go out of town. My wallet is going to be hit. My time, my energy, my effort. And God says, absolutely. And unless you're giving your life like that to somebody, you don't know this God. Unless you are giving your life, pouring out your life in such radical nature, you can't even be like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus left the ultimate security zone, the ultimate comfort zone, the ultimate safety zone. He left the praise and adoration of heaven. And he comes to earth and he suffers. He cries. He weeps. He pours out his life. And he preaches a gospel 
which made some people want to kill him, and it changed other people. By the way, if you're a gospel person, some people are going to want to kill you. Say, that doesn't make any sense. Because I like my religion, thank you very much. I don't want God. If you preach the gospel, some people will be like, more of that, please. And others will be like, that's offensive. The challenge for us, Andy, you can come on up, wrapping up here. The challenge for you and me today, I keep saying this to you, and I don't know if you're listening. (laughs) The challenge for you and me today is not to give in to evil, it's to give in to small lives. The challenge for you is not, I'm going to go off and do something wicked. That's not your challenge. The challenge for you is for you and your life to become small so God can become big and use you. The challenge for us, church, I'm talking to you, is not evil, but it's to give in to the secure, the comfortable, the convenient, and saying, I live for me, my needs, my goals. I care less about the world. The challenge for us is to respond to this God of the universe that says, I am sending you out. But God, that's scary, that's inconvenient, that's sacrificial. Precisely. I want your life to matter for something. I want you. It is so easy for you and I to say, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm living my Christian life. When day in and day out, you and I live for me, my schedule, my goals. And I hope you understand. I don't do this well myself. There are days when I don't answer my phone because I'm going, oh, if I answer this phone, he's going to drain the life out of me. So I'm not going to answer it. Go over there and do that. God, if I go there, it's not just going to be this once. It's going to be second and third and fourth and fifth. And God knows I don't want to do the second, third, fourth, and fifth. Is there something in your life that's bigger than you, a purpose for which you are giving of yourself? I have no smarts I have no gifts I have no talents God doesn't need any of that you know what he needs he needs your will and your will is in your hands even right now he's saying I want that I want that God by nature is a calling God a sending God and he says until you come to grips with who I am what I am like that I live for people I live to serve I live to love I live to sacrifice I live to transform I live to change people's lives God says unless you connect and resonate with this God of the universe you're not going to know well who I am you're not even going to know well who you are and what God created you to be do you have something bigger than yourself that you're living for told the story before I was talking to a seminary couple that's graduating from seminary I preached at Moody by the way this past week and this couple was from Moody you know and and I said hey you graduated from Moody and 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 you've been in a city urban setting why don't you give up your life for this city and I was shocked by the answer the answer was oh no God wouldn't call us into the city why well God wouldn't want to have us expose our kids to the dangers and the violence of the city Pastor Peter If there are people, leaders, 
Christian followers of Jesus who will not go into the dangerous, uncomfortable places. Who will? Who will? This past week, I was hanging at North Park, dropped by to get some coffee. <laughs> I walked in. Please, people, don't do this, okay? I walked in, and I'll cross the room. Peter! <laughs> Freaked me out. I was like, what the? You know, I'm looking around like, who's calling? And there's two young ladies, North Park students. Come on, come on over, come on over, come on over. <laughs> okay, walked over. I said, sit down, sit down, sit down. I want to show you something. He gave me a car. I said, have you heard of walking for water? I said, no, what's that? Said, oh, it's just this organization I'm going to tell you about. She pops out the computer. It's a map of Africa. And she was walking for water. Is this thing that me and a group of us started. And we're going to walk from one end of Africa to the other end of Africa, 4,000 miles, to bring attention to the fact that there's no clean water. And that people are dying because of it. My heart jumped when I heard that. I probably went, <gasps> but I don't want to freak him out. I was like, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> My follow-up question was, that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I could see them looking at me going, you are so pathetic, man. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of time. And one of them was gracious, and she said, oh, it's going to take us two and a half years. I'm getting emotional just thinking about this and thinking about this group of young people. This is what they say in terms of their vision. As a fresh-faced, idealistic teenager, I believed I could change the world. It didn't take me too long to realize I was being a little naive. But was the only option to give up altogether? No. The thing is to go about changing somebody's world that can make a real difference. And who knows, maybe they'll go and change somebody's world too. And before we know it together, we will have silenced the weary critics and ushered in a revolution of hope and a change for the better. A walk from the edge of Loch Lamont to the edge of the Sahara Desert. Six countries, two continents, and over 4,000 miles. I want to give my life for something. Pray with me. I am absolutely amazed that God continually comes to broken, flawed, messed up people and he gives people visions, a purpose for their lives that's as big as walking across two continents, 4,000 miles, two and a half years, 
just to bring attention to the fact that there are people who don't have access to drinking water. And you ask, how come stuff like that doesn't happen to me? How, how, come, how, come, how come that kind of a thing, Peter, doesn't happen to me? Like, I want my life to count. I want my life to do something. And I'm telling you, it's not a matter of, of the magnitude and how big and how famous and how notoriety. The, the issue for God is that he is simply looking for city world changers who understand the depths of the gospel and simply says, God, I am open. I am a available God my life all of it not some of it not parts of it all of it God all of it God all of it all he's looking for are men and women who just show up and say God I don't have much but what I have is yours I want my life to count for something because he's already given you the go. So this morning, the way I want to end this service is, and please, this is only for those of you for whom this is true. If you are somebody sitting here this morning and saying, I know God created me for a purpose and a reason that's bigger than just me. And I just don't know what it is yet. I, I just, I yearn, I hunger for it. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. Because that's where it starts. It's simple obedience, surrender, and yieldedness that simply says, God, hear all of me, everything that I am. And God gives it to us. God gives you the vision. God gives you a cause. God gives you a reason. God gives you a purpose son and daughter of God so this morning if you're somebody here this morning and saying Peter I need that I need that I need God to speak I need God to reveal I need God to show for those of you that are sitting here and you have it you know what it is and you're giving of your life for it I praise God for you I so thank God for you I'm humbled by God's amazing grace for you this isn't for you. This is for those of you that walked in here this morning and so I got smacked upside the head by a Holy Spirit two by four that's saying, I got to get beyond me. I want you to stand up from where you are and we're going to do this corporate prayer thing together. Go ahead. Stand up from where you are. Stand up from where you are and think, God, I need, I need God you to speak. God, I need you to reveal. I need you to, God, I need you to do this in my life. I want to be used by you. Will you stand up from where you are? Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Thank you so much, church for your raw honesty. Thank you so much. Now, for those of you that are standing, those of you that are standing, here's what I need you and me to do. I need you to stretch out your hand. I need you to stretch out your hand. And I need you to cup it as a sign of yieldedness and surrender. I need you to stretch out your hand. Because in your hand right now, and you need to mean this, in your hand right now is all of you, is you as living sacrifice, is you as the totality of who you are. That's it's your life. 
And I'm going to lead you and me in this prayer of lifting this up unto God, of lifting this up unto God. This is the beginning. This is the foundational thing for the rest of our lives to do. So God, many of us, men and women in this room, stand before you, stand in your presence. We know your word tells us, God, that our lives are of incredible worth and value and significance, that you've created us, God, to be city changers and world changers. But we stand because we lack vision. We stand because we lack clarity. We lack passion. We lack, God, these things. So we stand right now offering the only thing we can. We offer you our will. We offer you our lives. We offer you our bodies as living sacrifices. We offer you all that we are and all that we have. And say, God, use me. God, use me. Show me. Reveal to me. Speak to me. Here am I. Here am I. that to God. Here am I. 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 is a great God who has given you a great vision. Two things. Please remember next Sunday, invite, pray for, bring your friends with you. And today before you leave, I'm feeling particularly this, this, this need to pray for some of you who feel like you're in boot camp, feel like God is bringing you through the ringer, going through suffering and failure. I just want to pray for you and pray with you. I'm going to ask, matter of fact, some of the people from the prayer team to be up here as well. We're going to pray that whatever it is going through, it won't drive you deeper into yourself, but it will bring you out of yourself to change the world. He wants to do that in your life, you know. God, we, 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 we commission your army, men and women of the kingdom, out into the world, that they would be healers that they would remember, God, that they've been called in to be sent out. They've been healed to heal. They've been filled to fill the world with your glory, that they have been called to be sent. Father, clarify, strengthen, convict, reinforce this mission wherever they are. They might not be able to walk the continent of Africa, but they can start somewhere, and that somewhere begins tomorrow. Show us, reveal to us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, church. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week.